gonna start recording over here and over in there. I'm good. <laughs> okay, cool. So last week was the first message of the uh, Revival is Coming Bible Study series, and we talked about desiring revival. So really quickly, I'm going to summarize it. We talked about how when the body of Christ, when the temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit is at its lowest, its meekest, its most humbled and broken down, the way that our world kind of looks like right now and the condition of the church kind of looks right now is when God typically brings on the greatest um, sort of like increase in faithfulness and love and desire for him when people chase after God more fervently and in greater numbers than ever before. It is when we can clearly see a massive wave of the Holy Spirit's guidance, direction, conviction, and the salvation of Jesus just waving over millions of people. And that's revival. It's not that we entice God to do something great, but that God intentionally intends, right, to do something with our current situation. And he has ordained it. He is the ruler from generation to generation. He knew what would come, and he knew what he knows what is coming. And so we... we faithfully expect that God is going to do something that we cannot expect, right? That God is going to blow our minds and the revival will come, whatever it looks like. And we, we finished last night talking about how revival always begins with desire, right? If y'all remember that, I don't know. Um, and so that being said, tonight we're talking about desiring God, right? Our foremost desire must be God. Hence the title. See, apart from him, none of this works, right? Apart from him, revival is not only impossible, but worthless if it could be, right? If revival was possible, apart from God, it would be worthless. It would be, it would be void, empty. If God was not in it, if he was not ordaining it and participating in it, it would be useless. It would be nothing, right? God is the reason that we even desire revival in the first place because we want God to move. We want people to be moved toward God, right? And so out of our love for him, we have this love for others that makes us, again, desire revival. But the foremost, most significant and powerful desire of our hearts has to be God. So let's talk about desire itself really quickly. Why do we desire things, right? Foremost and supremely because we need them, and secondly, because we have room for more, right? The first reason we desire things is because we need them, like to survive, to live. The second reason we, need, we, we desire things is because we have room for more, right? We're not totally satisfied with what we have. We, we want the next best thing. We want to increase what we have. And so that's the two reasons why I think that we most often desire things. And so it is with God. See, in our, in our lives, when we are hungry, when we desire food, we eat. When we are thirsty, we drink. But even greater than these two, we need God, right? The same kind of survival that they give us, an even greater kind of survival is given to us by God, right? See, without food, we will die. Without drink, we will dehydrate and die. But most significantly, without God, we die eternally, right? And so let's weigh those out and measure which one of those is more significant, right? I mean, you, you, you can think and decide, right? And so our desire for God should actually be greater than the things that we need on, a more, on, on what people would describe as a more practical or, or physical basis, right? Our desire for God should outshine that. 
Because the, the eternal death far exceeds the death in this life. So you and I are made to desire God. We innately desire him because we need him, right? The first thing we said, we desire things because we need them. No one has to teach you to, to breathe or, or to eat or to drink. You know that you need those things, right? It's in our nature. It's not something that we're taught. In the same way, it is in our nature for us to desire God. We innately desire him. And even further, right? He satisfies us beyond our need. And so we desire him because we have room for more, right? When we don't have him, we will desire him because we need him. And also because the things that we do have are not satisfactory to us. And even further than that, when we have him, we continue to desire him, right? He's not just the bread, as it says in John, right? He's not just the bread, but he's the bread of life. And so he's the bread that fulfills us and, and, and gives us what we need. But he's even, even greater than any other bread we can imagine. He's the bread of life. He far exceeds any other bread or food we've had experience with, right? And so he is greater in that way. And thus he, he not only gives us what we need, but satisfies our wants. And he's not just the water, again, as it says in John, but he is the living water. Water that far exceeds any drink that we have had experience with in our time. See, God is infinite and eternal. He is totally unquenchable. He is a resource, a river that never runs dry or runs out or runs empty. None. He is eternal and infinite, right? Which means that if we had all time, right, we speak of him as eternally, if we had all time to, to take him up to, to, to use that resource, we never could, right? And he's infinite. So even if we had in one moment to try and use everything of God, we could not because he's infinite. So he is totally and completely fulfilling in every direction, in time and in space. But understand that resource is him definitively. It is God himself, right? So then, what do we do when we desire things, right? So we talked about why do we desire things but moving forward, what do we do when we desire them? Well, we seek them, right? We, we go after them. We try and gain those things to get hold of them. When you are thirsty, you look for drink. When you are hungry, you look for food, right? So it, it, it's a simple thought follow through here. And so we see this most definitively, I think, in John 15, 1 through 5. And so I'm going to read that right now. Verse 1, I am the true vine... And my father is the vine dresser. This is Jesus talking. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is saying that if you want me, right? If you want what your heart truly longs for, abide in me. He doesn't say you have to you have to fight off other people and you have to you have to lose your mind trying to gain the thing that you desire. No, he he says in Matthew that my burden is light and my yoke is easy, right? He doesn't say try and find me, look for me. He says no, I'm right here. Abide in me. Sit with me, remain in me, be grounded upon me, upon Jesus. 
says, abide in me. In this passage, in verses, 5, in verses 1 through 11, he says, abide 11 times. 11 times. He's trying to make a point. He repeats that word over and over, abide in me. That phrase, over, abide in me. For apart from me, you can do nothing in me. He says to abide in him, to be grounded upon him. That is the true emphasis that we should remain in and stand upon and seek closeness with Jesus Christ. See, the thing is we have to be careful that we are following him. Right? That we are seeking him. And the way that we do that is simply abiding in him and connecting with him and communicating with him. And so we are desiring God, not what he can give us. We see this kind of error made in John 6. Let's read verses 66 through 69. After this, many... Okay, so let me clarify really quickly what's happening here. That bread of life teaching we were talking about earlier. Jesus tells the people that were following him, possibly hundreds to thousands of people, he tells them to eat his flesh. And they're like, huh? You want, you want us to do what, Jesus? You want us to do... You want us to do what now? Eat my flesh. Right? Earlier in the passage, he had just fed the people the um, the fish and the loaves, right? Feeding the 5,000. And so they were like, yeah, we love this guy. We didn't, have to, we didn't have to try and find food today. He gave it to us. This is amazing. Let's continue to follow this guy. And then he says, well, now I want you to eat my flesh. And they're like, huh? Sort of like confused. And so here's what we see in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They left because what they wanted Jesus to give them was a miracle. What they wanted Jesus to give them was food. They wanted what Jesus could give, and so they left. But the disciples say, Jesus, this is verse 67, so Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter says, no, Jesus, I, I, I know your words are true. I'm not concerned about that stuff. I don't want to leave because I no longer have what you can offer me, right? He says, no, I'm going to stay here because you are here. You are here. Jesus, I'm following you because you are the Holy One of God, not because of what you can give me. And so I'm, I'm sitting here with you and staying and remaining and abiding in you. See, Jesus gives a hard teaching and seemingly no longer offers the literal bread from earlier in the chapter. But the disciples, the 11, they, they, they want him. And so they abide. They stay. See, talking about we're not even really desiring what he can give us, only him. I would even go so far as to talk about eternal life. Right? I've said this before, but and I'll say it again. Understand, heaven is not beautiful because it's not hell. It's beautiful because Jesus is there. These are the words of David in Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Whom have I in heaven but you? but you. Heaven, again, is not beautiful because, because it's not hell. It's not beautiful because we're not suffering. It's beautiful because Jesus is there. 
This longing and desire that you were created with, that you have, this desire for God, it would not be satisfied by an eternity in heaven if he was not there. It would not be heaven. It would not be paradise. It would not be bliss. And so this right here, this mistake that people make is genuinely the reason why I believe that there are so many false converts and false believers. This right here. Not because of a watered-down gospel, not because we don't talk about God's wrath and hell enough, but rather because people believe that Jesus only accomplished a rescue from hell. And so when we preach, we often nullify and demean the power of his cross. When we simply teach that all Jesus accomplished was salvation from hell, there is more to the story. The reason we think, wow, how come when these people say they believe Jesus and then a month later they're back, on, they're back doing drugs, they're back having sex, they're back doing all these different things because they don't understand the principle that we desire God and not simply what he can give us and that includes eternity. It includes eternity. They simply think, oh, I believe in Jesus. He's going to give me eternal life. He's going to save me from hell. He's going to give me heaven, right? I mean, he saved me from this. That's what the gospel is about, right? That's all it is. Understand that salvation from hell and the gift of heaven is beautiful and mighty and undeserved and nothing we could ever imagine. But understand, the cross goes further than to save us from hell. See, let's look at, let's look at the fall of Satan and the fall of man. Isaiah 14, 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, or Lucifer, son of the dawn, you've been cut down to the earth. What was the immediate result of Satan's fall? Genesis 3.23 Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. Therefore the Lord God sent him out. He sent him out from the very garden that God walked. What was the immediate results of these fall? No, it was not hell. Matthew 25, 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Satan's not in hell. No one is in hell right now. And so the immediate result of the fall of man and the fall of Satan was not hell, but disunity and separation from God. I'm not saying that hell doesn't exist. I'm not saying that people won't go to hell because surely they will and it is a terrifying reality that we have to understand when we study the word of God. But the immediate consequence of sin, of rebellion, was disunity and separation from God. Satan was cast down from heaven. Man was cast out of the garden. They were cast away from the presence of God. That was the immediate consequence. That was the most painful part from them. Satan does not know hell yet, but he knows what it feels like to be away from God. Adam does not know hell yet. Or I can't make a theological statement of where he's going. I don't really know. We don't really know. But point being, he knew the immediate pain of, of once at one point being in the complete presence of God in Eden and then being removed from that and having to suffer and tend the ground. It's Matthew twenty-five forty-one. The immediate consequence was separation from God. And following this logic, the initial consequence of Christ's work is not heaven. The initial consequence of Jesus' work on the cross, of his death and resurrection, is not heaven. That place doesn't even exist yet, right? The Bible tells us in Revelation that Jesus is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. They don't exist yet, right? The initial consequences of his work on the cross is restored oneness with God. 
It is that we can intimately and totally know him once more. That the, the chasm between man and God has been closed forever because of the mediator Christ Jesus. That we can relate to and know God intimately the way that we were created to now in this life. We so often think that the pinnacle of the Christian life begins when we die. No, it begins when you're saved. And we have to understand also that if we don't have that unity, if we don't have that rest, that restoration to God, if we don't have that, we don't have eternal life either. And so it's like a whole backwards thinking to just teach people that all Christianity is, is a belief that one day you're going to go to heaven. No, it is a constant relationship and connection to God. And if you don't have that, if you don't know God, then you don't have eternal life either. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I love this verse, and I swear I use it in every sermon, but I'm going to explain it again. The Greek word for know is gnosko here. Okay, I'm not Greek, so I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but I'm pretty sure. And that word means to know personally, or to know something from experience, or to understand completely. It's not just like you know who he is, you know that he's real, you know what he did. No, you know him, right? You know him. One of my buddies, and I've mentioned this in a sermon before, but one of my buddies, Noah, we were at a Bible study I was doing at my house, and he was sharing his story. And he said that God is more real to me than you are. That I am more aware of God's existence than I am of yours. That I am closer to him than I am to you. Now that's crazy and that's not constant, but that, that's the goal, right? That's what we want to be. But just the reality that we have to understand is that Jesus is who we are to know. And we are to know him in the same way that we know people around us. To know him in the same way that the disciples knew him, right? Like we so often think, man, the disciples were so lucky. They got to walk with Jesus every day. So should you. You should do that too. You should walk with Jesus every day in the same way. Connecting with him in the same way. I mean, I mean, I mean, think about it this way. The time the disciples were most faithful to God were after he left, were after Jesus left them because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. But the time that they were most fervently and passionately chasing after him and connecting with him and following him, right, was after Jesus had left. That's beautiful. And so again, continuing, if you don't have that connection and that oneness and that unity, if you don't know Jesus, then you don't have eternal life either. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. simply the past tense version of that same word, gnosko. He's saying, you thought you knew me, but the reality is you didn't because I didn't know you. We were never one. The chasm was never closed for you. You never believed. You never followed me. And though you think you did, see, so many people have this, like, this, this, they're just convinced that one day we're going to stand before God and he's going to say, were you good enough for me? Let me measure your goodness versus your evil and tell you whether or not you can enter. No. No, I don't we don't enter heaven based on our own righteousness. We enter heaven based on the righteousness of Jesus. And so I can say with confidence right now where I'm going. 
Because it is by the righteousness of God that I stand in confidence. It is by the righteousness of Jesus and the washing of his blood that I will stand in the holy places before Jesus one day. And I will be humbled and I will worship and I will bow, but I will be there in boldness and confidence knowing that I will not be destroyed. Because I know him. Not because my my... my my proof of this is not that the things that I do, that I prophesy in his name and I cast out demons and do many mighty works as these people say. Me preaching this sermon right now is not my greatest evidence that I know Jesus. It is that my life has been changed, that I would not, that when I disobey, I feel the pain. That I know consciously there is no other way than to be following Jesus. That I know when I stand before him, my testament will be that the blood of Christ is on me. And so he says, I never knew you. To desire God is to seek to know him. To know him. The reason we innately desire God is because we are meant to know him, the way that Adam and Eve did, right? And the reason we desire him more is because we do know him, right? We all have this innate desire for him because we were made that way, because we were supposed to know God. We're supposed to. And the reason we as Christians continue to desire him is because we do know him. That when you do come into communication, into, into connection, into oneness and relationship with Jesus, you continue to desire him because you see how great he is. I don't desire God because of what he can do for me. Sometimes I fall short in that area, but in reality, the reason we should want God is simply because of who he is. Because of who he is. See, that's the thing. We often think of God as more of a celebrity than a father or a teacher. We think of him as, as far off, um, that we really can't connect to him. We can look up to him and we can know about him, but we'll never really know him in our life. Some people will get lucky enough to connect with him. But in reality, we sort of, we scroll through and, and, and we see what's going on with God, but we don't really get to, to know him, you know, and, and be friends with him and, and be in love with him and be loved by him, right? We don't get to know secret things about him and have him know those things about us. But that's wrong. <laughs> he's all-knowing. He, he, he's a father and a teacher and a master. He's not a celebrity that's far off, right? Let's look, at, let's look at Enoch, for example. Genesis 5, 24. Enoch walked faithfully with God, and then he was no, no more because God took him away. Enoch walked faithfully with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. The like Hebrew tradition is that he never died, that God just brought him into heaven, right? And I remember first reading Enoch, like about Enoch, and thinking, man, I wish that was me. That would be so cool. And then sort of writing it off as an impossibility. But the reality is, is that Enoch is supposed to be essentially a picture of Christ's church. I mean, we are to walk with him. I mean, that's what the verse says, is that he walked faithfully with God. It wasn't like, God, I'm trying to catch up to you. No, it's like, I'm walking with you. And you're guiding me. And I'm going the way you want me to go. And I'm being faithful to your hand. And then God pulled him out of the world. That's us. <laughs> like, that's the church. We have the capability, if not more greatly, to connect with God than Enoch could. Right? 
I mean, so, for example, another example. Let's look at the narrative of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is like my new favorite book of the Bible. It's amazing. It's amazing the way the, the, way the, the, the author writes. And so the supposed author is Solomon, right? And so we can think and we can look in Kings, one of them, um, where it teaches that God made Solomon wiser than any man who ever lived. He filled him with more wisdom than any man who had ever lived. And so in Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs, he writes down a ton of that wisdom. And what we see is that with that wisdom in Ecclesiastes, he realized that we are meant to be perfectly unified with God. And so thus, he gains this vain view of life because he realized he, can't, he couldn't have that perfect unity, that he could connect with God. And he would rejoice in that and celebrate that. That's why he would build the temple, right? Understand this. Do you see how these things are connected? Solomon built the temple because he wanted that connection with God, to be in the presence of God. But he also knew with this divinely given wisdom that he could not have that unity perfectly, right? Why not? Why? Because he could not have the Holy Spirit as we do. Understand that. This is why I say that the, the immediate accomplishment of Jesus on the cross in our lives is the union with him, right? Here's why, okay? We were meant to walk faithfully with God. I mean, next to him, like Adam and Eve in the garden, like walking literally down the garden, down the aisles of trees with him. But that seems like a crazy idea to us. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? And, and here's why the immediate consequence of the cross is, is that unity. Because we couldn't have the Holy Spirit before, right? We couldn't. Because we were full of evil. And God will not dwell in a place of evildoers. He will not enter a defiled temple. He won't. And so Jesus dies for us. And by his blood, our sin is washed away. His righteousness is imputed into us. We are given his righteousness and we put upon, he takes from us and places it upon himself, our righteousness. That's why the Bible says he became a curse for us, right? And so by that crucifixion, the bloodshed of Jesus, we are forgiven. Y'all can help me out. Where was I when I froze? Anybody? Where was I? What was I talking about? I just want to Make sure I can pick up on what y'all... I knew it was lagging. That chat froze. But just what was I talking about? I want to pick up where I left off. Never stop. Okay, I'm getting uh, different answers. You didn't miss anything. Well, that's beautiful. Um, <laughs> then, okay. Well, then I'll just pick up where my mind knows that I was. So, the immediate consequence of the cross, you know, that we are, we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus and our sin is forgiven. The Holy Spirit then can indwell in us and fill us as his temple and be with us, right? And he enters with us. 
And so we have to understand that we don't worship this God who's like far off, like up in the sky, like he's a, no, no, that's not the case. He's right here, right? And a lot of people have this bad understanding of the phrase uh, where two or more are gathered, there he is, right? In, in the word of God, in the Bible. A lot of people think that that means something it doesn't mean. And what my te- one of my teachers pointed out to me is that when it says when two or more are gathered, that, that context is talking about church discipline. It's not talking about worship. It's not talking about the presence of God. And so a lot of us are like, yeah, when we go and be in a group, then we can feel the presence of God. No, no. You have the Holy Spirit in you. The presence of God is literally always with you. Always. He doesn't leave. You are sealed to the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. He does not depart from you. Ever. And, and so we confuse that. Understand the Holy Spirit is with you actively right now. <laughs> like think right now of how much the Holy Spirit does for us. More than we could ever know. And he's constantly there doing his work. He convicts us. He sanctifies us. He teaches us. He cleanses us. He does literally so much. The Holy Spirit draws near to us. That we may feel and know the presence of God. So think of how much the Holy Spirit does for us and then reflect on the reality that you cannot have him without the cross. So here we see then that the immediate effect of the cross of Jesus is that the chasm between man and God is closed. Psalm 27, 4. This is David. One thing I have asked of the Lord that... that phrasing is weird. Psalm 27.4 One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The greatest life, or sorry, the greatest desire of David's life is something that we have incredible and constant access to. The Israelites, many of them, the righteous ones, the one the ones after him, the obedient, faithful people of God in the Old Covenant, they loved and enjoyed the presence of God. Right? To be in his house, to gaze upon his beauty, as David says. Now, they were terrified of it, right? <laughs> but they loved God. And they loved to be in his house. You are his house. Don't take that for granted. The, the, he, he literally says, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, right? The greatest desire of David's life is something that we have incredible and constant access to. And so the mark of a true believer is not just that we are saved by him because we certainly are. And that is something to be humbled by and to beautifully reflect upon, but also know that the mark of a believer is that we know him and are in covenant with him. Here's what the word covenant means. Taking this straight from ESV commentary. In the Old Testament, covenant implies one, a relationship that is with a non-relative, includes obligations, and is established through an oath. That's a covenant. 
Why does it seem so often that the language of the Hebrew people in the Old Covenant think of their communication with God as so much more relational and connected than the church does? That's a good question. Think about that. Like, why do we even ourselves think of God as being far off? When even the Israelites, who could only connect with him in the temple, right? And had all these ceremonial laws they had to go through so they could stand before him. And were incapable of connecting with him the way that we can. They often speak of God as being closer than we do. Why? Because they saw him enter the temple? Have you not seen Jesus change your life? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm certain they would wish more for the Holy Spirit to indwell in them than to see God enter the temple. People truly don't understand that knowing God is even a part of the program. They just don't. They don't get it. And so this is why I was saying that I believe that there are so many false converts because of this teaching we're talking about right now. Because people simply think that all Jesus did was save them from hell. He also saved you from a life of being incapable of connecting with your creator. And so if we don't talk about that as that being an essential part of the gospel, then what is the purpose of this life? Why would people be concerned about being holy and pursuing God? and being in the Word, and praying, and going to church. Why would they be concerned with that at all? If all they think is that Jesus came to save them from hell, that's a beautiful thing. I don't want to know, I don't want to like break that down at all, at all, to demean that reality, that Jesus saved us from the fires of hell. He has snatched us from over the flames, and he's giving us and offering us an eternity in heaven. I don't want to take the beauty from that at all, and don't, don't let me do that, okay? Don't in your mind begin to think of, of, of heaven as less beautiful. But also consider that Jesus tells us to take up our cross daily because the kind of connection that we will have with him in heaven begins now in this life. Heaven is going to be beautiful because there is nothing standing between us and God completely. And the kind of relationship that we can only have hoped to have with him, one that is that is unadulterated and that sin never interrupts, that is what we'll have in heaven. But if you don't have a relationship with him now in this life, then what relationship are you going to be carrying out and furthering for eternity? Right? I mean, the Bible tells us time and time again to love God. How can you love him if you don't know him? The Bible, when it uses the word belief that we throw around all the time, that word means to entrust, right? To, to trust. Well, in our lives when we trust people, how do we learn to trust people? By getting to know them. You don't just immediately trust everyone with everything. No, you don't. You trust people as you continue to get to know them. And so it is in knowing the character of God that we can trust him and believe and love him. And we'll talk about desiring truth and desiring the word in a message soon enough. That'll be its own whole thing. But like I said, people just don't understand that knowing God is what Christianity is about. I mean, that's why heaven is so beautiful. Because we will know him eternally there. Right? And that knowing begins here. And so ask yourself, do you know him? Because that question, the answer to that question, has eternal implications.
Real quickly, I just want to end. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise men boast in his wisdom. Let not the, the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. One more time for you. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That is the center of Christian life. That you are worshiping a God that you know personally. He is not an emotionless statue who cannot communicate with you. No, he is, he is a God who has given you the word and has given you a means by which to communicate with him wherever you are, whenever, in any circumstance, for any reason. Like, don't overlook the blessing of the word of God, which allows us to know him. And don't overlook the blessing of prayer, which allows us to connect with him and have immediate relationship with him. Don't overlook our ability to go before God and worship and be forgiven. And so I'll ask you once more, do you know him? Right? The center of this message was to be desiring God. And I asked at the very beginning, what do we do when we desire things? We seek them, right? We do whatever it takes to have them. Whatever it takes. I mean, when we really get down and we are empty of the thing that we need, we will do whatever it takes to gain them. And the good news is that you do not have to work to gain Jesus. He gives himself to you freely. Completely freely. The good news is not that you have to work and gain Jesus. That we have that opportunity. No, the good news is that Jesus has done the work. Do you want to know him? That is something that he can offer to you then. You cannot gain knowledge of God on your own. You cannot gain and maintain a relationship with God on your own and by your own strength. You can't. You can't. Rather, the Bible says, to repent, to believe that Christ has raised from the dead, and to confess with your mouth Christ is Lord. If we desire him, that is how we seek him initially. And we can know him even now. 